Well, good morning, Cornerstone. It's good to see you all. If you're new, I'm Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, today is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bible to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 24. 1 Samuel, chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the chair in front of you. It's black. And you will find uh, our reading today starting on page 246. Just look for the big number, which is 24, and then the little numbers are the verse numbers. And you can follow along as we move through this. Here at Cornerstone, we work through books of the Bible a little bit at a time. And uh, the last few months, we've been in the book of First Samuel. And uh, here's, here's sort of what happened so far before we begin reading. God's chosen people have been delivered and brought into the land that God had given to them. And they were his people. They had a special purpose as his people. And God ruled them as God through his word. Well, they demanded a change in government. And so they wanted a king to rule them. And God gave them a king, a man by the name of Samuel. Well, it turned out that Samuel was an ungodly, or named Saul rather, and Saul was an ungodly leader. He rejected God's word and he rejected God's ways. And so the Lord anointed another man to be king, a young man named David. David is a great warrior who loves the Lord. And he serves as a general in Saul's army. In fact, he becomes the son-in-law to the king by marrying Saul's daughter. The Lord blesses David in everything that David does. And Saul becomes jealous and perceives David as a threat to his throne. Well, as you might already know, men in power don't generally like losing power. Saul goes mad and begins to leverage the resources of the kingdom against David, chasing him down as if he were a a runaway dog. It seems that Saul will do just about anything to get David killing just about anyone in his way, anyone who protects David. In fact, even priests of the Lord. Saul got very close to catching David at the end of chapter 23, but the Lord protected him. So that's where we pick up our reading in 1 Samuel chapter 24. I'm going to read the first few verses here, and then I'm going to pray, and we'll get started working through this. In total, it should be around 35 minutes or so. This is the word of the Lord. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as shall seem good to you. Let's pray. Uh, Lord and Father, we thank you for time that you have given to us to open your word and to read. Will you come now and give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, that we might know and understand what it is that you would speak to us, your people, 
gathered in this place for Jesus' sake. Lord, I have nothing to offer your people but your word. Speak to us and show us Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. It is said that three things are for certain. Death, taxes, and that the greatest movie character of all time is Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride. Now, if you don't know who Inigo Montoya is because you've never seen The Princess Bride, I'm really not sure I have anything to help you. You might be beyond hope. Inigo Montoya is a man whose father had been murdered by a six-fingered man. And he had devoted his entire life to avenging his father's death. And it consumed him. It's 20 years, and he's starting to lose confidence. He's taking side jobs, but there's not a lot of money in revenge. He's broke, and he's an alcoholic. Now, I doubt that very many here have a family member that has been murdered by a man with six fingers on his right hand. But if you have lived any amount of time, you have been wronged by someone. You have been slighted, harmed, injured, or offended by someone. That's just the way of things. And from childhood, God has installed in every person a sense of justice. God is a God of justice, and we are image bearers of God, and so we are drawn to, and we work very hard for, justice. This is why we organize into governments for justice. This is why we organize into labor unions for the sake of justice. And where we see injustice, we protest, and we work very hard to stamp it out. This is work that we've been doing since we were toddlers, when you were a kid and your brother took away your toy, you protested the injustice of that with hitting, screaming, and some of you probably biting. Vengeance is driven by that innate desire for justice. You've hurt me. You've mistreated me. And that needs to be made right you need to feel what you have done to me. Well, there's a problem with this. You see, the slighted human isn't very good at exacting justice. Injuries have a blinding effect on us. Did your kid brother deserve the black eye because he took your dinosaur toy? Did your sister deserve the arm bar you gave her because she ate the last piece of cake? And we protest our mom's sense of justice because it's off in our minds. It's way too soft. Others need to pay for the wrong they have done to us. King Saul believed justice meant that he would remain on the throne even though God had said you're through. His sense of justice was driving the rage he felt against David. And, and, and you know, really, it's God that he's mad at. But he's taking it out on David. 
a nobody who has done him no harm. The king of Israel heard that David was hiding in the wilderness of En Gedi. And so he handpicked 3,000 soldiers to go in search of one man. David is not accompanied by elite soldiers like Saul. He's accompanied by a band of misfits, and they're outnumbered five to one. And so the author sets up the stage for our passage this morning. Saul, the great king of Israel, the commander of thousands, is dressed in his royal robes, and he has to go to the bathroom. There's a cave nearby, and Saul enters the cave. And he probably takes off his robe for logistical reasons, that you might imagine, and does his business in the cave, the king sitting on a different kind of throne. Well, literally, did the king know the man that he was despe- desperately trying to snuff out is hiding deep in that very same cave. And David, David's men, they understand what's going on perfectly. This is your opportunity, boss. You, you got to act. Now the Lord has given your enemy into your hands. Strike him down. He's indisposed, as they say. Well, let's keep reading. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. What a missed opportunity. Those of you who have been with us in this series, you you know what sort of man Saul is. He's a maniac. He he just got done ordering the death of 85 priests of God. He almost killed his own son. This man is crazy. He's no good for God's people. He is not a good leader. He's bad for the country. And instead of killing Saul, David cut off a corner of his robe. And notice in verse 5, as soon as he did that, his heart struck him. His conscience was burdened over what he did. David was convicted. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. The Lord had delivered the king, the evil king, into his hand. David's the rightful king. Why is David convicted? Over cutting off a corner of of Saul's robe. His men are confused about this too. They're sort of like, well, look, I mean, you might have issues with it, but I don't have any issues with it. I'll take care of him. We'll do it. And in verse 7, the ESV translation says, David persuaded his men not to kill Saul. That's actually too soft. The NIV gets closer to the original language. David rebuked his men. Why is... Why is David protecting Saul? Would Saul have protected David? It's a missed opportunity. 
David is the anointed king. He's been anointed by the prophet of God. And God had proven to everyone time and again that God is with David. No matter what he does, the Lord is with him. And Saul had been rejected as king and everyone knew it. So so not only does David punt the ball, but he feels bad for even kicking it. And why? Because he ruined the stitching on the king's robe? What a softy. Well, David explains the reason his heart was burdened in verse 6. He says, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. You see, Saul's robe was a symbol of his position as the king. Only the king wore that robe. And by David cutting off the corner of his robe, he's sort of like saying, I'm cutting off your kingdom from you. And David knew that was wrong. If I'm to be the king, then it will be by the Lord's hand, not mine. If justice is to be served here, then it will be by the Lord's hand, not mine. A.W. Pink helpfully explains, one stroke of his sword and he steps into a throne. Farewell to poverty. Farewell the life of a hunted goat. Reproaches, sneers, defeat would cease. Adulations, triumphs, riches would be his. But his at the sacrifice of faith. At the sacrifice of a humbled will. Ever waiting on God's timing. At the sacrifice of a thousand precious experiences of God's care. God's provision. God's guidance, God's tenderness. No, Mr. Pink says, even a throne at that price is too dear. Faith will wait. Close quote. You see, David knew something about a sovereign God. All things are in his hands. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Faith waits and trusts that God will accomplish His will in His way. And faith is suspicious of shortcuts. Any pathway that shortcuts the long cross-bearing process of utter dependence on God is suspect. Any option that seeks to speed up God's way of humbling us is guaranteed wrong. Any storyline with us as the hero is the wrong storyline. The path that avoids suffering to win glory isn't God's path, and David knew it. Now, you do remember, the same, very same option was offered to the Lord Jesus in a wilderness. Matthew chapter 4 tells us that the devil 
took the Lord Jesus to a very high mountain. And on the mountain, he showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he told the Lord, if you just simply bow down to me, then they're yours. No cross, crown. All you got to do is bow down. And do you remember what the Lord Jesus said? Of course, the Lord knew God would give him the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He knew that was God's plan. He knew it was God's plan to make him king of kings and lord of lords. But Jesus would not take the kingdom. He would lay down his life to receive the kingdom. He would walk the lonely road of suffering, carrying the cross to do it God's way. And he told the devil, you shall not worship anyone but the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And we are here today because the Lord Jesus did not compromise. Because Jesus didn't take the easy road. Salvation for sinners was made possible because Jesus submitted to God's will, not the enemy's, not even his own. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. Afterward, also David took, or David went out from the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord for he is, against my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. Verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Saul leaves the cave and David follows at great risk because outside the cave there are 3,000 men hired to kill him. He comes out of the cave and cries out, my Lord, the king! And as soon as Saul turns around, David falls to the earth and pays homage. <laughs> even though this man had done him such wrong, even though there was evil in Saul's heart, David gives homage. He's the king. He is the Lord's anointed. 
And I suspect David seeing his face was sort of like twisting of the knife into his already convicted and soft heart. Isn't it interesting in verse 8 that David doesn't even blame Saul for his actions? He assumes that Saul is being misled. He says, why are you listening to people who keep on saying that I'm wishing you harm? And yet nowhere in the text have we been led to believe that anyone is deceiving Saul. He's chasing down David of his own accord. He is driving the manhunt. And yet David gives the king the benefit of the doubt and does not presume upon his motives. Would that we would show the same restraint for our brothers and sisters when we see them in wrongdoing. David admits, the Lord handed you into my hand. And then he raises that hand saying, see, my father, calls him my father because remember he's his son-in-law. See, my father, the corner of your robe. I don't want to hurt you. There's no wrong, there's no treason in my hands. You imagine the king looking down and seeing in the corner of his robe torn off. And even though David isn't going to presume upon the king's motives, he's not going to minimize the king's actions either. I have not sinned against you and yet you are trying to kill me. Verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. (laughs) Such God-centered faith. David exposes Saul's sin, and vengeance is necessary, but that vengeance won't come from David's hand. He says, the Lord will be my judge. Now, back in chapter 16, David is described as being prudent in speech. In verse 13 and 14, a good example of this. He quotes a proverb saying, out of the the wicked comes wickedness. See, my hand has not come out against you. Against whom has your hand come out? You see what he's doing? A dead dog, a flea? David is using gentle language, respectful language, unassuming language language to soften the king's heart. I'm a nobody and you're the king. Notice that even in David's language, there isn't a hint of judgment. He's calling Saul to do introspection. What are you you doing, Saul? Who am I? It's gentle, invitational language. Out of the wicked comes wickedness. What is coming out of you, dear king? And then in verse 15, David repeats himself. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me out of your hand. Cornerstone, may the Lord be judge of all of your life. May he give sentence. May he plead your case. When you've suffered offense, when you feel that your honor has been assaulted, when you start seeing red, can I encourage you to Close your eyes, close your mouth, and bury your hands as deep as they'll go in your pockets, and trust in the Lord to do justice. 
And do not, dear one, do not take matters into your own hands. You are not able to see well enough to judge rightly in your own case. What did the Lord Jesus teach us in Matthew chapter 5? Was it not this? Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Can't do that! Turn the other cheek. That's un American. No, I gotta stop these cheek slappers. What if they slap somebody else's cheek? No, I'm doing this for others, you know. They did me wrong. And they need to know how much they've wronged me. They will, dear Christian. They will. But vengeance is not yours. It belongs to the Lord. May the Lord be judge. Let's finish the chapter. Verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David lifted up his voice, and Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. The gentleness of David had its desired effect. Saul's heart was softened. Is this your voice, my son David? Saul knew his voice. All those years spent in his kingdom, giving him counsel, singing songs with him. And he calls David his son. You remember from just a couple of chapters ago, he called him the son of Jesse. And Saul wept. You're more righteous than me. You've repaid me good, whereas I've repaid you evil. May the Lord reward you. And then Saul pleads with David for mercy. And David shows the mad king mercy. He didn't, as so many of us do, give him the cold shoulder. Hold a grudge. Just don't with me. 
you know, doing that, that's a form of vengeance too. The cold shoulder, the snubbing, the refusing to reconcile. That might actually be the worst kind of vengeance because it breeds bitterness which destroys the avenger. Look at verse 20. It is astonishing. For the first time, Saul recognizes the true king of Israel. He has been confronted with his own sin and he recognizes the true king. I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand, the hand that would not take my life, the hand that trusted the Lord for justice. Those words were more true than Saul could have possibly known. You see, because God would work through David to establish his kingdom. The kingdom of God would be established on the basis of what took place in that cave in the wilderness of En Gedi that day. Just think this through. Saul the mad king fighting with all of his might, gripping tightly as he can to remain on the throne of his life. And he lashes out with unholy hatred against the true and rightful king who had done no wrong. And though the Lord delivered Saul into David's hands, though Saul deserved to die, David spared his life. And on this principle of mercy, grace for the undeserving, the Lord establishes his kingdom through David. Friends, we don't have to wonder why it is that the Lord Jesus is often called the son of David. What David began, Jesus fulfilled. We are like Saul, the mad king, fighting with all of our might against God's true king who had done us no wrong and yet we hated him still. He was a threat to our self-sovereignty. We wanted to be king. And so we nailed him to the cross. We were the ones who did the wrong, and yet it was him who paid the penalty. And so Jesus went in our place for our sake, and the penalty of our sin was paid by him. And God raised him from the dead on the third day, and he came forth out of the grave, sort of like coming forth out of a cave to proclaim the message of God's mercy for sinners. And on that basis, God has established his kingdom on the earth. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you came to church today. God wanted you to know this very message. That there is hope for a hell-deserving sinner such as yourself. That if you turn from your sins and you trust in Jesus Christ, all the wrong that you have done will be paid for by him and all the right that he has done will be gifted to you. You will be forgiven of your sins and added to a family on their way to eternal glory. Whoever brought you to church, talk with them about that after service today. If you came on your own, I'd love to talk with you after. Or find someone who looks like a regular around here and ask them. These are my friends. I know that they would love to meet you, to talk with you, and introduce you to this new life of freedom, joy, peace in Jesus Christ.
Well, as you think over the things that we have just read in 1 Samuel 24, ask yourself, is any of that really even possible? That kind of mercy? Anyone who has suffered offense knows just how hard it is to give grace like this. That's because everything in us demands that we take matters into our own hands. And look at your life. Is it not true that behind you are the wounded, dead relationships of those who got in your way? Who were a threat to your sovereignty? Who did you wrong and you had to make an example of? Yet God's command is inflexible. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 and verse 22 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Can anyone actually do that? Not on our own, we can't. We need Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 24 shows us the way. For to this cornerstone you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. So when you've been treated unjustly, entrust yourself to the only one who will judge justly. The Lord is judge. Yeah, but pastor, won't that make me a pushover? Mm Mm-hmm. Won't that make me appear weak? Mm -hmm. If I forgive him for what he did for me, won't won't he do it again? Mm -hmm. If I reconcile with her, she won't know how much she hurt me. Mm -hmm. I can't do it. I won't do it. I won't forgive. Well, then you're not a Christian. Those aren't my words. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 15. You see, a Christian understands that if God had dealt justly with her, she'd be in hell. Because that's what we all deserve. But the essence of the Christian life is that justice was laid on someone else. The innocent one was nailed to the cross and the guilty go free. Let me ask you, does mercy make Jesus a pushover? Not in the slightest. There are no shortcuts through the wilderness of Engedi. 
We've all got to go through it. You are all going to be tempted to take matters into your own hands. Remember, friends, the Lord will be judge. Trust his sense of justice and doubt your own. Show patience. Speak gently. Make no assumption of motives. Keep short records. Reconcile with others quickly. Bear all things. Believe all things. Hope all things. Endure all things. Return evil with good. The Lord will be judged.